Good morning. He was born to conquer the grave. You ever heard of anybody else being born to conquer the grave? That's pretty amazing what other faith, what other belief can say that the one you follow was born to conquer the grave. That's amazing. Let's pray before we look into our passage this morning. Father, we thank you for your wonderful gift of your son. We thank you just for the sacrifice that he was willing to take upon himself and become. And we pray, Lord, that as we look into your word during this Christmas season, that we may be able to understand more and better of who you are and what you've done for us and what it means. We thank you for your word and our fellowship in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, two weeks ago, as we began our Christmas series, we talked about the hope that can fill our hearts as we turn to God and see his plan for all mankind. Now, for someone who doesn't believe in God, then there really is no plan, is there? Uh, If you don't believe in God, you just have to make up your own plan and just hope it works out. But when we say hope, we don't mean that we're believing in something that there is no proof of what's going to happen, and we're just blindly hoping that it comes, it turns out good, or at least we don't end up in a bad place. No, you know, we saw in God's word that after Adam and Eve disobeyed uh, God and their one and only prohibition that they had in the Garden of Eden, God then arranged the circumstances so they could not make their way back to the tree of life, which was in the garden by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they had taken from. God made it so they couldn't get back to or get to the tree of life in their lost sinful state and be trapped in that lost sinful state for eternity. But rather, he made it, he designed it so that they would one day physically die, and if their trust was in God, they would be redeemed and live forever with him. That was God's plan. He had a whole plan of redemption all worked out so that mankind as a fallen race could be redeemed, which means bought out, purchased out of the slave market of sin, and declared righteous and spend eternity with God. That was God's plan that in Christ we could be declared righteous, even though there's nothing righteous within us, and spend eternity with God. And all of that to say that God is truly our only hope. Our only hope is in God and in his plan and in the way he works. You know, in our daily lives, we place our hope in all kinds of things, don't we? We place our hope in all kinds of circumstances or all kinds of things that we encounter. Sometimes our hope is rewarded. Many times we get disappointed because our hope doesn't come true like we hope. But when we place our hope in God and in His promises 
and in his plan of redemption, we can thrive. It's a whole big difference, isn't it? He was born to conquer the grave. And then last week we looked at some of the promises God made to his people. And we talked about Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Moses and David and Joshua. <clears throat> promises that God made along the way, along the pathway towards when Jesus Christ would come. And those weren't just little simple promises. Those were life-altering, faith-stretching sometimes humanly impossible promises, which again reaffirms that our hope and faith are only completely safe in God and His promises and in His plan for redemption, even when they might seem impossible to us. But this morning we're going to be looking at some very solid reasons why it is the right thing for us to be putting our hope in His plan and our trust in His promises. Putting our hope in His plan and our trust in His promises. And now, just one thing before we dive in. You know, many people in our world think that we Christians are placing our hopes and trust in pipe dreams or fantasies. Like, we don't have an ounce of solid proof but I say the evidence is overwhelmingly on our side. Totally on our side. And in the next few minutes, I'll point out a few key prophecies from the Bible that have come true in many times remarkable ways. And it's all going to be kind of centered on the promised Messiah. Because that's what we're, we're celebrating, the, the coming of the Messiah the savior of the world. And, and one list I saw as I was kind of looking this up, like the, the passages that concern the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, uh, one list had 47 passages, you know, verses or passages that referred to the coming of the Messiah. Another list had 50 that were all in the Bible. All these passages were in the Bible talking about the coming of the Messiah. So the Bible is full of passages telling about the Messiah coming, and we know he did, so it's not a pipe dream, is it? <clears throat> now, when Jacob, son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham, you know, Jacob, the father of the 12 patriarchs, when he was very old and nearing death, and he was down in Egypt, you know, Joseph, his son, had moved him down to Egypt, <clears throat> he called his 12 sons to him, to give them, you know, the blessing, because Jacob was on his deathbed, basically. And so what he would normally do, or what a father would normally do then, he would start with the first oldest son and give him the main blessing, and maybe he would become the, the leader of that clan or that tribe or whatever. However, Jacob's first son, Reuben, who should have received the blessing and the one he called to him first, <clears throat> he sinned greatly against his father uh, in, in a pretty bad way as far as taking his, his wives and that sort of thing, trying to kind of overtake him. And that disqualified him from receiving that blessing as the oldest son. So Reuben was out. 
Then his next two sons, Simeon and Levi, they came to his bedside, and they were disqualified from receiving the promise <clears throat> because at one point, their, their sister had been raped by a man from another tribe, another community, and so they went to avenge her, and what they did was they killed every man of that large tribe, took all their livestock, carried off all their wealth, took all their women and all their children, and of course, like I said, killed all the men. And so Jacob became very, very angry that they re retaliated in such a horrible way, in such a massive way. And so <clears throat> when Jacob talked to Simeon and Levi, who were number two and number three, he said, you guys aren't getting the main blessing, you know, the, the one that would give them leadership. And then Jacob, he goes to his fourth son, as the first three are disqualified. And <clears throat> this is the fourth son he got from Leah. Leah was the wife who gave him his first four children, his first four sons. And I want to show you what it says in Genesis chapter 49 and verses 8 through 10 as he talks to his fourth son, which is Judah. He said, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Now remember, he was, this would have gone to Reuben if Reuben had you know, done the right things. But now it's all the way down to Judah. <clears throat> you are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So you see, <clears throat> the ruler's scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah. Whoever the ruler will be at the end, to, to whom all the nations shall be given, will come from the tribe of Judah. And it would have been to three others if they hadn't uh, disqualified themselves. And so now it makes its way down to Judah, and we will see that it would be a, a, you know, someone from the tribe of Judah who will be, you know, possess all the nations. And then in Revelation chapter 5, God the Father is seated on his, seated on his throne. There, there, John the Apostle is shown this image, or he's taken to this place where he sees God the Father sitting on the throne, and God is showing him things that are going to come in the future. That's in the book of Revelation. And God the Father is seated on his throne holding the scroll. And it's the scroll, it's the deed to the earth. You know, evil people had come and, you know, ruin, or, you know, tried to ruin God's plan and take over the earth themselves. And so there was this deed to the earth, and the Father was holding it, and they were looking for somebody who could open the scroll. The scroll would, would throw out the judgments upon the earth against the wicked and reclaim the earth for God. And so they were waiting and waiting, and no one could be found. 
on earth or in heaven. This is the way Revelation says it. To, uh, to open the scroll, no one was worthy enough. And it says the apostle John wept because no one was able to open the scroll to unleash God's judgment upon the earth. Until one of the elders, one of the 24 elders, these were heavenly beings surrounding the throne of God. <clears throat> one of the elders said this. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, that, you know, the apostle John is weeping because nobody could open the scroll. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. <clears throat> we saw that the, the scepter will not depart from Judah. And so many centuries after Jacob's words of the scepter not departing from the tribe of Judah, here is the Lion of Judah fulfilling the scripture regarding the Messiah. The Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ. And next we move to the time of King David. He has in mind to build a magnificent temple to honor God. David calls the prophet Nathan and tells him his plans. I want to build this magnificent structure for God because God is so worthy. Nathan says, go to it, do it. Anything, everything in your heart, just, just you know, take control and do it. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, telling him to go back to David to tell him that he is not the one who will build the temple for God. God says he will raise up one of his offspring to build the temple, and then God will establish his throne forever. And he says to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, <clears throat> he says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is what he says to David. So now we have the promise of God that David's throne will be established forever. Now we know that Solomon sat on the throne for a time. But on down the line, there will be a descendant of David that will sit on the throne for all eternity. And of course we know the son of David will be Jesus Christ, the actual son of God. Now, you think of all these things that just you wouldn't think would happen in these instances. How in the world do you get all of these aspects of history to line up in the way that fulfills the scriptures? I mean, does it look as though Jesus Christ just happened to kind of appear on the scene at some random time when people were super gullible? These are the promises of God working their way out in history as God has determined and as God has orchestrated. And that is why we call it the Word of God, isn't it? And people wonder what we're thinking of. We're thinking of things that have been proven over the centuries. 
But now I want to show you a promise on down the road. It comes in 700 B.C. or the 700s B.C. And it comes at a time when Israel is being punished for their unfaithfulness to God. <clears throat> but promises them that God will send them a ruler in the future who will lead them to victory. And it's in the prophet Micah. In Micah chapter 5, it starts out with a warning of judgment coming upon Israel. It says, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. So there's judgment coming from God against Israel for their, their sinfulness. But then it changes into what God's going to do later. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So he's, he's prophesying a ruler coming out of the tribe of Judah. We've been hearing about that, haven't we? And he will be the ruler over Israel, but his origins are from ancient times not an regular person. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So we have this Ruler coming, Micah first prophesies judgment and salvation. Israel will face judgment for her unfaithfulness, her sins against God. But then there will come a time of deliverance. A ruler will come, it says, from Bethlehem. He will rule over Israel. And his origins are from of old, ancient and so after God judges Israel for her unfaithfulness, there will be an Israelite son born to a woman who will rise up in the strength of God himself. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of, his, of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. These are... Pretty amazing uh, prophecies, pretty amazing promises. I mean, they go way beyond what normally happens, right? <clears throat> now, in the same time period, a prophet named Hosea prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel. And in chapter 11 of Hosea, God talks about his love for Israel. Look at uh, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. <clears throat> okay, that's talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, God freeing Israel from Egyptian slavery, right? But then, as we, as we read on, it goes on to say how Israel turned away from God. But then the gospel writer Matthew, who takes this verse, 
He applies it to the Christ child being taken to Egypt to escape Herod's murderous plot. As, as Herod killed all the babies from two years old and under. And he does so, Matthew does this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So look with me at Matthew chapter 2, 13 through 18. It says, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Now, you all remember this from the Gospel of Matthew. <clears throat> where Herod sent the soldiers down to kill all those children. And so an angel comes to Joseph to have him take Jesus away from there. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, <clears throat> where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. <laughs> Isn't that amazing how God puts things together? When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And he's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31. <clears throat> Matthew takes what happened to the children of God what would happen to Israel and those children of God. He takes it to the person of Jesus, the very Son of God. Now, when you see all this happening, you see all these scriptures, and you see it all coming down, fitting in just the way they do, does it give you the uh, thought that somebody is working all things out to make them come to a certain conclusion? <laughs> Does it seem like uh, we have somebody we can trust? Get my water. You know, God is even able to take what people do for evil and work it out so that the results eventually work out for good. And you know, it is so amazing how God works out his promises and how he brings his, his prophecies to reality. When you see those prophecies, you just think, how could that ever happen? And even when you read them, you think, wow, how did it work out that way? But he takes those things, even with evil characters, even with people that are just playing out totally evil, that work so hard against God. And he uses their evil even to bring about good, to bring about his prophecies that are prophesied for good. And, and in ways that no one could ever think up, 
When we read these stories, there's no way we would think of doing those things to get to a certain point. But God, in God, we can place our hopes and we can totally trust in his promises and we can bank on the prophecies that we find in his word. And even now, we will see prophecies that look like they could never happen. And we'll never be able to predict how they can. That, that, that God will work them out. Work them out. <clears throat> and we'll be again amazed when we see how God continues to work. Now, just before I read off several prophecies from God's word that have come true, just kind of read them through. I'd like to mention a couple of special prophecies that people have held dear over the centuries. And we'll just look at these. We'll just kind of read through them. Isaiah 43, a voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. When the king would come to a, a, a place, you know, visiting some people, they would, you know, just try to straighten out the road to make his ride soft. And that's what's talking about here, as God comes. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. <clears throat> and then Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then in Isaiah chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. We were seeing that, weren't we, in the prophecies? Establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We can trust in every single prophecy, can't we? And we've just seen them come through all through the ages. Impossible things in our eyes. And God makes it happen in ways that we could never predict. In ways that we would never think of. Now, here are some things that the Messiah was prophesied to do or be. He says, He was prophesied to be hated without a cause, crucified with criminals, have his hands and feet pierced, be mocked and ridiculed, have his garments gambled for, have his side pierced, he would pray for his enemies, 
He would be buried with the rich, be resurrected from the dead, be seated at God's right hand. And there was a, several more that were there in the list. I just chose those. But they all teach us that we need to place our hopes firmly in God's plan, our trust in His promises, and our confidence in His prophecies, the ones found in His Word. Let's pray.